This is the Sustainabro Podcast with your host, Will Shepard. Episode one of the Sustainable Podcast. My name is Will Shepard, and I'm going to be your host. So today on the show, we are bringing on Dr. Eric Williams from the Galasano Institute for Sustainability, and he's just a super awesome dude, super brilliant guy. Um, and so he's actually been doing research and sustainability for well over 20 years now, with his career actually starting in Tokyo. And so we get into that a little bit, and it's a really cool story. And then on top of that, we're going to be looking at you know, two of his biggest areas of expertise, which are in electronic waste and also in electricity grids. And so we take a deep dive into e-waste and kind of answering the question, what happens to your iPhone after you're not using it anymore? Um, so we look at, you know, four different potential pathways that an iPhone can actually go through after its life is ended here in the U.S. And in addition to that, we also take a deep dive into electricity grids and kind of go over the aspect of integrating batteries um, into the grid itself. And also we talk about renewable energy and kind of the future of what an electricity grid could potentially look like. And so guys, I hope you really enjoy the show. Without further ado, here's Dr. Eric Williams. What has kind of been your your journey from graduating with a, a degree in physics all the way to kind of where you are now and being a researcher in sustainability? Sure. Uh, yeah. I studied physics because I thought it was beautiful. I still think it's beautiful and I loved it. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's what I, that doesn't mean I, I'm going to become a career researcher in physics. Uh, I mean, and if you look at them, I mean, there was in physics, there was Einstein and Newton and Dirac and like, what am I going to do really? <laughs> so I, you know, I enjoyed the PhD at the same time I was looking around for something else to do and something that was socially relevant. And so I was in Japan doing a postdoc, and I thought I should do something sustainability and energy. And so I started doing volunteer work at an NGO, Friends of the Earth, and that led me to United Nations University, which is actually a UN agency that's based in Tokyo, Japan. And I started volunteering for them, and my postdoc ran up, and I said, please give me a job in sustainability. And I guess because they knew me as a volunteer, they said yes. And so I switched over to doing things like life cycle. Actually, I started the work on electronics then. I was doing life cycle assessments, uh, which are looking at the life cycle impacts of semiconductors and computers and also getting to the e-waste area. Okay, awesome. And so you said you originally started your research in Tokyo. How was, how was the experience like that different from now, like what you're doing in the U.S.? So first off, I was doing research in a, in a U.N. think tank, which is it's called United Nations University, but it's really more of a think tank. And so there's a cultural difference between universities and, and non-universities that's separate from the country differences. Uh, and yeah, I mean, what was definitely different there is just that I didn't, you know, I, I actually, I had a situation where I had a lot of flexibility and a lot of time to do a lot of the research myself. And so I was running around getting lots of data and, uh, and that was, you know, that was, that was, that was a great opportunity. I, I have, I think at the university, I'm more of a faster pace, you know, like more, more papers out, you know, uh, you know publish repairs. It's, it's more of the, the, the culture here. Uh, but yeah, in Japan, in the Japanese universities, the culture is very different from here. It's much more hierarchical. Uh, you have the senior professors and then they have, uh, they have junior professors under them and they kind of direct what they do and so forth. But it's, it's a long story, but it's, it's, it's very different culture. 
Interesting. So, and then working with like a lot of e-waste things. So would you be able to tell just kind of the listeners? Um, so what happens when you say you throw away an iPhone? Right. So a number of different things can happen and it depends on how and where you throw it away. You know, some people throw them away in the regular garbage, you know, so if you put it in the garbage, it's going to go to a landfill. Probably not that huge of environmental impact to have a land, an, an, some iPhones sitting in it, at least in, in, a, in a modern landfill like we have in the U.S. Uh, but it's also a, you know, a waste of the resources that went into making the phone. So another thing that happens is that you get sometimes you get turned in for recycling, in which case they uh, basically what they do is, is that they'll, maybe they'll take the battery, but then it gets re- thrown into a shredder, which makes it into tiny bits, and they have special machines that separate out the metals, and the circuit boards all go off to a special facility, uh, not in the United States, probably Canada, that gets out things like gold and silver and some of the other precious metals. Uh, and so that's the recycling uh, uh, option. The other thing that happens is that they get reused a lot. So uh, depending on where you send it in, the, that, that firm or that person may look at it and say, hey, this phone can still be used or maybe we can fix it. And so they'll fix it up or you know, do something and then they'll sell it. Often that, those sales will happen abroad, not within. Some of those sales will happen within the U.S., but a lot of them go uh, to overseas. And then another thing that happens is, is that if it ends up being overseas and not usable, it gets recycled using what we call informal recycling. So you have some folks that are it's just kind of people in their backyards or have or recycling electronics uh, with really hardly any technology. And so if they have a pile of wires and they want to get the copper out, they'll burn the casings off the wire in order to get the copper. Or they'll dunk the circuit boards into into uh, so, uh, into acids and uh, and cyanide in order to get the gold out. So uh, so yeah, so I mean, you had you know, depending there's different things that happen, and depending on those and very different environmental and social outcomes depending on on which of those it goes to. Yeah, sure. So I guess well, there's three end of life options, right? One one's in the landfill, one's recycled properly, and then one's kind of informally recycled. And I would also call reuse to be an important one. I mean, obviously, even if it gets reused, it gets, uh, you know, recycled or something happens to it at its very end of life. Uh, but there's a lot, a, lot, a lot of electronic products, including iPhones, uh, their technical life is much longer than the life that, a, that an individual consumer wants to have it. Right. And so this opportunity to squeeze more of the, uh, of the, of the goodness out of the product. And, and it turns out that environmentally, this can be important because the, the environmental impacts of making electronics are, are relatively high uh, compared to a lot of other products in terms of their weight. Because if you, if you think, if you, uh, when you make semiconductors, for example, semiconductors, the manufacturing processes require super ultra high purity. Uh, in order to get this wonderful functionality out of the microchips, it really, you know, if you, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the advertisements for Intel where people wearing the, the, the clean rooms and the clean room suits. Those suits are not to protect the workers. Those are to protect the product from the workers because everything has to be super clean. And you can imagine the cleaner you need to make things, the more energy, the more impacts are associated with keeping everything clean. So there's a fair amount of, there's, there, there's a relatively surprising amount of environmental impact to make the, make the equipment which means that the more you can squeeze that value out of the, of the environmental investment you made, you know, the, the better. Yeah, absolutely. And so looking at the, the two potential recycling options, would you say that yes. one is significantly better than the other or how, how would they differ? Okay. So 
from an environmental perspective, the formal recycling, you know, going to one of these, you know, we actually have a Sun King, uh, they have, we have some uh, a company in, uh, in Rochester, Sun King, they do the disassembly and then they send the things off to different places for their, for processing. Environmentally, the formal recycling is much better. And I don't, you know, there obviously with any processes, there's always something you can improve, but it's just not, there's not a huge amount of worry associated with going uh, environmentally to formal recycling. Informal recycling uh, ha can, has really serious environmental impacts because what will happen is, is that the, the, the activities will concentrate in certain areas. They'll have a lot of these, these folks will be burning a lot of these wires. They'll be using a lot of cyanide in order to get the gold from the circuit boards. And there's lots of evidence of environmental contamination of those sites. That's environment. Now, socially, right, the informal recycling is, is providing employment to people who don't have jobs otherwise, right? And so, uh, and that was, that's what creates a complication because if you say, well, you, you know, hey, you, you people, you're hurting yourselves doing that job, you shouldn't have that job. But the people are saying, well, we want a job, we just want a safe job. <laughs> and so that leads to a, to a conflict in ideas on with informal recycling, how should you address it? You know, is it, should it be banned because of the environmental damages or should you try to fix it somehow? So, so these people who are actually doing the work, do they have health effects from doing the informal recycling? Certainly. So, so the health effects could come from, there's a lot of different pollutants that would come out of this. So, so for example, uh, although lead is being phased out of solder, traditionally the solder that's in electronics is from lead. Uh, is primarily made of lead, and so uh, when they do the recycling, oftentimes they'll, they'll, they'll pick off circuit circuits off of circuit boards by heating them up, and there'll be lead vapors, and so there's a lot of lead pollution. And certainly, you see uh, they've measured uh, lead content uh, as being overly high in these areas, and then that causes neurological problems. Uh, when you burn the, the the plastic casing on wires, is made, often made of polyvinyl chloride which is a kind of plastic. And if you burn a chlorine-containing plastic, just open burning, and uh, it creates dioxins and furons, which are really not good for people. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's quite a bit of uh, illness and contamination in those okay. areas. And then so just as a holistic view, looking at this as a, a consumer and someone who is eventually going to have to get rid of my product, what is the, the best area of action for me to dispose of it properly? Yeah, I, I'd like to. I'd like to just say, this is the you know, this is the one answer, and you'll just be you know, then you'll be set. Uh, it's pro so I'll I'll talk about the different uh, let 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 me explain your different options and say what are the pros and cons, and then sort of leave it up to people to decide. <laughs> right, and so one thing is, especially if you have a cell phone, I mean, these are really easy to return. I think they even have an envelope sometimes that you can send it in. And I think, and different stores accept electronics, and they have electronics recycling events. And so whenever you go, whenever you turn your device into one of those events, what's happening is, is that one, uh, 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 some, some company based, probably locally, is going to collect that, and then some of the stuff they'll try to reuse, actually. And then, uh, but at the end, if it, if it gets reused, that's great. Uh, and the, the others will be recycled in a pretty safe way. So uh, that's a pretty good, you know, I think, you know, there, there are a lot of good outcomes there. Uh, throwing it away, there's nothing beneficial from throwing it away. <laughs> right. Uh, 
now the question of what how does stuff how does all this stuff end up going overseas as e-waste right you know in terms of how, how does this stuff so what happens is a lot of electronics that use informal recyclers in developing countries uh, uh are are processing is actually from america from europe from japan and, and rich countries and so well, where, how did that get there and what seems to happen is that sometimes when you send it into these firms it will end up you know, so some, sometimes they'll really try to fix it up and send it. And sometimes they'll send the stuff just as a giant pile of waste and then kind of leave it up to that country to figure out what to do with it. And so when that happens, then you have the potential of, of it becoming informally recycled, becoming informally recycled and um, causing those problems. But I don't know of a great way to, you know, if you, I don't know of an evaluation system that my audience to say, okay, I turn my phone in here and then I know it's going to end up with that company, and I know it's going to end up, uh, you know, in this, you know, you know, with this disposition. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's what I'll say. <laughs> but I also said that, you know, it's it's actually it's not only for electronic, like our like like I have my recycling bin, right? And I put the aluminum and this, you know, and the steel cans and the paper in there. And what what ends up happening with that? You know, uh, it's actually hard to know. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. And so you've also done a lot of a lot of research on electrical grids, right? Or just recently, that's that's your most recent research. Yeah, I'm more on I'm more on about electric, electricity systems and rural energy. Yeah. Now. Okay. And so, would you be able to kind of tell us a little bit about what you've been doing along those lines? Uh, yeah, I think for me, what one truly one of the most interesting questions is: is this, you know, if you look at things like solar panel and wind. Uh, these renewable technologies that don't emit carbon and they don't have the other and other uh, problematic emissions from that fossil fuels put out they're, they're, the, the technologies right now are expensive especially if you want to start electrifying everything like vehicles and well on the on one hand you know as an environmentalist okay we'll pay more for electricity you know what's the problem but electricity is really important for the economy it's really important for people's lifestyles so you gotta you really want to manage the cost you want to have carbon-free, cheap electricity. And what's very exciting is, is that the renewable, these technologies are getting much cheaper. If you look at over the last 10, 20 years, solar panel wind has made so much progress. And so uh, they're, they're still not there in terms of being preferably economically to fossil fuels in a lot of situations, but they're so much better. And so I'm really interested in this future where the technological progress has made it to the point where we can really have reasonably priced 100% renewable energy. And so a lot of my research is about trying to understand technological progress, like to track, look at the past of how the prices of solar panels have been progressing and try to forecast that in the future. To look at policies, we have subsidies for electric vehicles and subsidies for solar panels. Okay, if you give this amount of subsidy, are people gonna buy it? Or are they not gonna buy it? And if they, if they do buy it, you wanna have a subsidy where it's just enough to make them buy it because you don't want to spend too much government money on, you know, on stuff. And then them buying it then helps it be become cheaper for future customers. <laughs> because what happens is the more people buy, the more factories they build and the better they get at making things and the cheaper it becomes. And so this interaction between technological progress and diffusion and also the policies that try to make this all happen. So building models and trying to inform policy on, on how to make better decisions is, is what the research is about. Looking into the future now, do you think there we might see an inflection point on the horizon where green energy is now going to become cheaper than than natural gas or coal? Uh, yeah, that's certainly that that certainly is a possibility. 
so actually, wind has become, in many, there are many places in the United States where if you want to build a new generator, the answer, the, the answer for, the, to give you the, the, the economic, the, the economic best answer is wind. Uh, now, the, the challenge is that even if you have very cheap wind and very cheap solar, those are intermittent generators, and our, our, our electricity demand varies not according to how much the sun is shining or how much the wind is blowing. So you need some kind of storage, uh, uh, you need a lot more storage than we have now on the grid in order to make, in order to have a 100% renewable energy grid that's, that's also economically effective. So we, so, we have to have, so we have to have some combination of, we have to have cheap storage definitely, and then some combination of cheap wind and or solar. Is this it, it? It could happen, uh, and there's just a lot of there's a lot of questions on how what we do as a society to to, to increases our chances of having that happen. Okay, and then so so for you you raised another point for solar or at least a capacity for storing electricity, and so would storage in a electrical grid always be something that's beneficial to the grid? Uh, not not necessarily. It, it depends on it. Like, like anything, like any technology depends how you use it, <laughs> right? And so if you put storage on the grid and you say, hey, store battery bank or hey, storage bank, your job is to make money. And if you put it on some grids, you actually increase the emissions on that grid. Because if you imagine, imagine a grid that has a lot of coal power, which runs at night, and then you have natural gas generators that run during the peak during the day. And then you throw a bunch of storage on that grid. What happens is, is that the, the, the store and the storage is now trying to maximize its revenue or profits. So the, the, the principle is buy low, sell high. And so electricity price prices are, will be low at night. And so it'll buy, it'll charge up on coal power and then it'll discharge during the day and, and, and replace natural gas when prices are high. And so you'd actually increase the utilization of coal plants at the expense of natural gas plants with storage on some grids, if you ran them based on economics. So, uh, so the answer is no. It doesn't. You have to. You have. It, 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 you have to manage it right too. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it might be kind of counterintuitive to initially look at. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's people want to. You know, a lot of times the, the people want to think of something as being an inherently green, electric vehicles or storage. But actually, life is more complicated and it's context dependent. Um, and then so just another question in terms of, of policy and, and where that is going, at least we could look at it in New York State where you're based. Um, how do you feel about like programs like the community solar programs that they have going on in New York? I'm familiar with them broadly. I don't know if I know enough about them to to have a have an opinion. I mean, have, you know, the more residential solar, the better. Uh, I don't actually have statistics handed in my brain as how much. And what we want is, is we want these programs to to make a, a significant difference, right? We want to have them lead to lots of solar. I actually don't have the numbers handy as to whether they're making a significant difference or not. Uh, do you know? Have you looked that up? Uh, well, so so like the the community solar programs are basically you have a a large large solar farm that's built, and then you will basically have individual consumers uh, subscribe to that service and then they'll get energy credits on their account, which will then be like paid out to RGE for a reduced price and it's subsidized by the state. So you're, you end up building lots of big fields that are cheaper to maintain, 
than necessarily like, and they don't have the upfront cost that residential sol- or solar would have for the customer. Yeah, so the question is at the end of the day, right? If you're looking at, you know, how much solar is being built in New York and BLB, you know, how much, you know, the fact that, you know, how much are these computer community solar programs actually leading to increased adoption of solar? You know, how many megawatts? You know, and you can have an idea that seems like a great idea, but unless people are actually doing it, it's like, okay, you know, it was <laughs> nice, but, you know, you know, you know, show us, you know, show, show us the, the results. And I just, I, just, I just haven't looked at statistics in computers, so I don't know how, how successful it's being in actually delivering megawatts of solar capacity in New York. So just looking into the future, do you see kind of any, any solution that would basically help to drive sustainable resources? Well, I, I tend to really focus on these technological, uh, essentially technology development and how to stimulate it. And so I think that the things like the in, in, in the different subsidies of techno, of, for solar, for wind, for electric vehicles, I think those are, those are great mechanisms. Also, uh, the government uh, supports research and development of new technologies. And so all those programs, I mean, that's the kind of program that, that can make a big contribution. Uh, you know, it's really about, you know, you know, investing the invest, you know, investing in the right technologies with the right amounts of money so that you're getting the results, but you're also not overspending like crazy and taking money away from education and other things that people need. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So for you, at least, what do you think is going to be like your next goal or next point of research that you think is important? Right now, we're doing some work that's related to what I was, uh, to that, that the previous topic is we're trying to do work on optimal subsidies. So the idea is that if you subsidize something, it encourages people to buy. And then as people buy, it gets cheaper. And then at some point, hopefully it, it stands on its own economically. And so what we're working on is working on models. To, and right now, there are a lot of governments subsidize technologies a lot. But right now, you know, are these, are these roughly the right subsidies? Or you know, are we wasting money on these subsidies? Or are they leading somewhere or not? It's not always clear. For example, the government spent tons of, ton, many decades of, of, of pretty big money on subsidizing corn-based ethanol which first of all, did not make it cheaper enough, did not make it cheap enough. And second of all, it's not something you really want from a sustainability perspective anyway. And so, uh, so that's, that's an example of a bad subsidy. Most of them are not so bad. Uh, but I, I am excited about the idea of trying to create models that would help us understand whether, in, you know, which technologies and how much and over how long and how long we should, we should subsidize them in order to bring them to, to commercial success. Okay, cool. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome and like pretty cool stuff. So I'm, that's kind of all the like big questions I had for you. Do you mind if we just do kind of like a quick fire off some questions at you and then just have you answer them? Sure. All right. Um, what do you wish you had known when you first started researching? I guess it depends, it depends on whether I was a go back to being, I guess I wish I wish I had a better sense of you know, sort of the, the difference between what I'm interested in and, and making a distinction between what I'm personally interested in and, and areas that I can personally contribute in, right? And I think I really, as a physicist, I just focus, well, I, th- I think this is interesting, so I'll do this. But I wasn't really going to make a major contribution to that. And in, in fact, the things I was doing, maybe only 100 people in the world would care, you know? And so to, to, to be thinking about balancing those things, like, okay, who will care? 
uh, can I make a contribution in addition to one's own personal interests? Okay. Yeah. So just kind of finding what's best for you and moving on with. Well, it's kind of just a Venn diagram. You might think of like a Venn diagram, right? You have this circle is what I, what you're interested in. This circle is what you can make a contribution in. And this circle is what society cares about. And you want to find the intersection of that, of those three circles. Uh, that's, that's really, that's, that's kind of one, I mean, it's, that's really key, I think, to, um, to, re- to doing, having a research career. Yeah, sure. Awesome. And then, so if you could re- recommend one book to any of the listeners, what would it be? The Story of Civilization by William Durant. What's that about? Uh, well, this is a, if you don't, can I digress just a little bit? Oh, go for it. Okay. So there, in the early 1900s, there's this guy named William Durant who got a PhD in philosophy, and he wrote a book called The Story of Philosophy. And it published in 1925, and it was a bestseller. It's pure philosophy book, but made to try to explain it to general people. And they made he made so much money that he and his wife could dedicate basically the rest of their lives to researching a 10-volume set on the history of civilization. And so they went around the world and talked with different folks. Uh, but really, what's best about it, if you look at that first volume of that history book, it's really how would you how would you describe it? It's, you know, I don't know. In school, I learned about history being like dates, you know, and battles and names of monarchs and stuff like that. But I didn't find that very interesting. But what I find really interesting is more the conceptual history. Like, what are the big trends? What led to civilizations being successful versus falling? And that for those first several hundred pages of the first volume of, of the, the story of civilization is just, is it's beautiful writing, and it's also just chock full of insights of how humanity developed and what led civilizations to rise and fall. Yeah, sure. Sounds really cool. Um, and then, okay, so next question. Uh, on a scale from 1 to 10, how do you think we're doing in the U.S. Uh, with sustainability? I guess that's a comparative scale, right? Uh, maybe a 5. So obviously we don't have... We don't have national climate legislation, which is that takes off a few points. But on the other hand, you know, the states are doing a lot and there's a lot of things we're doing that are they're not directly climate targets, but there's a lot that we're doing to reduce carbon that isn't explicitly a target. So, you know, I think the U.S. gets a bad rap. I think I think there's a reputation. The U.S. isn't doing anything about the environment or or climate, but the U.S. actually does. The gap is between, say, U.S. and Europe is not I don't think nearly as large as many people imagine it to be. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I guess you do hear a lot um, that would indicate that the U.S. isn't doing nearly as well. And so do you think it's mostly coming from the states then that is is really the important driver? Yeah, so the, the U.S. states do a lot. And there's federal programs. There's federal efficiency programs. Uh, there's federal support for R&D. There's federal tax. The, the, the electric vehicle tax credit is federal. The solar, The residential solar tax credit is federal. And so there's a lot the federal government is doing, but it's just, that's just not directly a climate target. Uh, and, and the states are also doing, and depending on the state, California, especially uh, New York, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good as well, are, are doing a lot. Um, then, so on to the next question, what do you think is kind of the biggest common myth uh, about things related to sustainability? You know, I, well, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, we'll actually go back to the e-waste topic. And I think the myth is that that the way to manage a hazardous material, that, 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 that the world can be divided into dangerous things and not dangerous things. And then if we ban the dangerous things, then mission accomplished. 
you know, and so this just comes to an e-waste and that the people, there was a lot of effort, for example, made to ban lead and solder. This is an effort from the European Union. The idea being that lead is toxic. But at least in the European Union, the US, I mean, nobody actually ever is exposed to that lead, right? And it ends up in a landfill and, you know, it's not really a problem. So on the other hand, you know, the, the real problem is over with the exposure to these things and people in informal recycling, but removing the lead from solder is not going to solve the problem for the informal recyclers. <laughs> you know, and so uh, this idea that you can make products, that, that, that the target should be to make them completely safe by removing the things that we have designated as hazardous is a, is a mess. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just to wrap up, uh, where can people uh, go to find more about you and your work? Yeah, probably ResearchGate. Well, there's there's the RIT website, obviously. There's ResearchGate. I don't know whether people are familiar with that. I do a little bit on Twitter, but not much. I should do more. All right, awesome. Yeah, so that's that's all I had for you. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh no, my my pleasure. up episode one of the Sustainabro podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening and I hope you learned a little bit. And so if you enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review on our, our podcast website if you can. Um, and then if you want to find out a little bit more about us, we're on Instagram. Um, so that's going to be sustainabro.podcast. And then we're also on the web. Uh, so we've got a website and that's www.sustainabropod.com. Thanks for listening.